Hello, my friends. Hello. This is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Very excited to be here with you today. Today, I have a conversation with my friend. His name is Daniel Kazanjian. Anyway, we talk about tribal belonging. We talk about community and real relationships of care. We kind of go into what the really healthy embodied community is and how we're missing that and what it might look like to reimagine that and reestablish that in our lives and how we might feel if that's the case. It's a really cool conversation. I think you guys are going to like it. Like most of my conversations, it's pretty much jam, jam format. So if you like this show, consider supporting on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash airy in the air. You can support it for as little as $5 a month, which really makes the whole fucking thing go around. Super helpful. Share it around. Make it iTunes review, those kinds of things if you're looking to help the show. But most of all, that Patreon really, really helps. So without further ado, here's a little uh, nice little music. Got some new music for you. And my conversation with my friend Daniel Kazanjian. Enjoy. so much for being here You're... thanks for having me okay so there's just a couple of your twitter feed is full of nuggets that um that are relevant for my life right now and the one i want to start with is you <laughs> you tweeted all your goals are just shitty proxies for tribal belonging <laughs> And so I think that why that's relevant for my life right now and what we just talked about before we started recording was 
we all have this really innate embedded need for belonging and tribal belonging certainly mm-hmm. and it seems that we're more you know like the the cliche way to put it is like we're more connected online than ever before and everyone's more disconnected i think that's true but i also think that we've lost what it actually means to belong mm-hmm. we just were talking about the problem of everyone having an opinion on covid on the state of the world and using opinions as a way to judge and parse each other out into what they think is a community the misconception of community here being that community is those who share the same same narrative as you and that's away from the proper conception of community which is actual relationships of care so i want to hear your thoughts on tribal belonging and its relevance today yeah well not to go morbid right away but the first thing that this uh brings to mind is that uh in the last year i i know three people that committed suicide uh-huh. and if i look at those instances i think i have reason to speculate that one of the main causes for those individuals going to such a dark place was their disconnectedness their lack of belonging mm. And I think that was already an issue before, you know, the world went into this global pandemic and associated lockdown and whatnot, but it was certainly exaggerated by the fact that these people were physically isolated from everybody else. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think it's like a deep need. Um, it, it's like analogous to, uh, you know, if you don't eat at some point, your body doesn't get enough calories and you die, right? Like, you don't drink enough water you you die from thirst mm-hmm. um if you don't have enough belonging if you don't have enough um relationships of care then perhaps you start developing all these downstream mental health issues that mm-hmm. could eventually lead to depression and suicide so um i think the stakes are high and i think a lot of people know this i think uh, every time i bring this up with anybody they they're one or two degrees away from a similar story so uh yeah i guess i'll start there like i think the stakes are really high and and the need is really high for for belonging yeah i think it is worth saying what i hold to be obvious is that belonging connection um interaction just like seeing another person interacting with them is a human need like Mm -hmm. it is a physiological human need and our civilization has changed so rapidly in the last say few hundred years and our evolution has evolved us to need these things for so long that we are we're on a quick we've started a a rapid famine Mm -hmm. of this. And my intuition is that this thing that I just laid out, that civilizations change quickly and our evolution has taken us to need this for so long, this is the soil from which the social dilemma grows, right? Mm -hmm. The, The hijacking of our minds and our attention by social media and by algorithms and by big tech, that grows from this underlying need for tribal belonging that has been undermined by the ways of industrialization and how our society has changed and grown. Yeah, and, and basically uh, it's, it's an attempt to commodify the the need or uh-huh. to come to create a commodity to serve for that need 
Uh-huh. Just like how, you know, the junk food industry creates these highly palatable, uh, high calorie, but ultimately not nutritious snacks uh-huh. that are become very addictive. Like, you know, you can eat an infinite amount of Doritos because they're designed that way. I think it's the same thing with, uh, with the social dilemma and social media, just the need that it's creating a commodity for is, is the social belonging need. And I think this is like increasingly obvious to people, but what's not obvious is, is what to do about it. Uh huh. I think I'm particularly sensitive to my need for belonging. Mm. I don't know what other people's experiences is like in this, but I have friends who I just see as more independent or individualistic. Um, my friends who have an affinity to hike the PCT, you know, to spend all summer on trail by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think would be great for me. It would be a great exercise. I am longing for something that forces me into that space on, in through that discomfort or Vipassana. Mm-hmm. Um, so I see this in my life that I have this need and the, I've found community in so many ways. And I think that the way that I have, I think the way that I've, that I found most reprieve from that need being unmet is through my intimate relationships, through my partnerships. Mm -hmm. And that is a beautiful thing, but also set some kind of trap for both of us. Um, cause that's a lot to expect. Like you're putting too much pressure on your partner. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes. Makes it difficult. makes conflict resolution more difficult. And it's just some, some underlying pressure on the system. Yeah. So I think that we're at large, we see that kind of thing with our political orientations that people are putting pressure on their shared narratives, hoping that their friends will be people who share the political opinions and orientations that make them feel justified and insulated from the rest of the chaotic, crazy world. It's interesting because we, I, I told you I hadn't been talking much about society at large and mm-hmm. the political opinions and such, and here we go. Well, I, I think um, what you said earlier about community being relationships of care, I think, I think I'm really interested in exploring what that concretely means. Mm-hmm. Um. Because at least to me, what immediately comes to mind is, uh, are, are like very specific relationships in my life. And, um, I guess opportunities I've had to show care for people mm-hmm. and also the, I guess like the challenge involved in that, like, it's not, it's not easy to be caring and loving. It's a, it's an art, mm-hmm. you know, it's a skill. It's, it's, uh, you know, if you're having a bad day, like sometimes you, you get a little narcissistic and you forget that there are people around you to that, that need your love. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I wonder, I wonder what it looks like to do that really well. I mean, I have, I have like a sense of direction there, but, uh, I imagine, I imagine it's like a, like anything, any art form that there, there, yeah, there's some people who probably are, are masterful in their ability to show care and love for others. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, I'd like to share what 
how I how I frame this in my head. Yeah. The difference between a shared narrative and a actual relationship of care. Um a shared narrative is more than just a shared opinion. It's a felt sense that the opinions are kind of proxies for. Um, and it is a feeling of validation and confirmation. It's merely psychological. It's merely psychological. Community as real relationships of care, I start to think about what are real human needs. These are both our needs for shelter, our needs for food, clean air and water, rest, quiet, play, touch, sexual expression, belonging, connection, authenticity, vulnerability. The list of human needs is not infinite. We all share human needs and like Max Neef, you know, has boiled them down to nine. So real relationships of care are relationships where I, I would almost introduce the platinum rule here, you know, the golden rule, treat others the way you'd like to be treated. But real relationships of care, I think, operate on the platinum rule, which is treat others in the way that they would like to be treated. Mm -hmm. And even more specifically in this context, treat other people in the way they need to be treated. Right. Because it's their human need. Right. So. I would say that like a real relationship of care from me to you is where I have close enough proximity to you, whether, I mean, when we really get down to it, it's physical. It's difficult to like have a, the human needs have evolved in physical proximity. Mm -hmm. So we have technologies now that are kind of bolstering that, that I suppose we can have authenticity, vulnerability, connection, communion, belonging without being physically near, but um, there's a proximity element to it. And there's also like this observation where I um, am slow enough and observant enough to actually come into relationship with come into contact with what your needs actually are and then without me narcissistically projecting what i would want if i had those needs but mm -hmm. actually not necessarily providing but enriching your life by fulfilling some of your needs this is kind so of how i this is kind of how I think of like a real relationship of care. Yeah. It, it reminds me a lot of um, like an analogy to a jazz band uh, or like a jazz trio where each, um, each instrument, each member is trying to make the other one sound good. Mm. And when there's trading solos, they're, uh, they're, they're responding to the, the creative element that the other person put out so mm. the pianist plays one thing and then the the bassist hears that and then augments it with their thing and uh it requires a lot of sensitivity and responsiveness and you can sometimes see this like i think i think most people even if you're not a musician you can feel it um sometimes uh, the musicians get egotistical and they they just want to play like their fancy solo or whatever it is and they they lose that responsiveness with each other uh -huh. and, and the chemistry breaks apart so i think it's like that in in, in what you described as well, where uh, you need to be observant enough to notice when to come in, you know, when to place your musical motif in somebody else's life such that it's actually good for them, such that it, it augments their experience. Yeah. And it's not necessarily something that you want to do, you know, from your own ego. 
Yeah. Yeah. The um, analogy that the, I, I like that analogy and I think that's very relevant. I think that any audience who's sensitive enough to appreciate the music can tell when the band is jiving with each other and when they mm-hmm. have a narcissistic riff going. Um, the analogy that's real for me in my life is within food as I love to cook. And one of the ways that I can care for people in a profound way is through cooking. And the shared narrative version would be, hey, check this out. I made this really super spicy thing. It's so good. You got to try it. And the person's like, "Uh, you know, when in reality, you know, she's like about to start her period. And the last thing she needs is spicy food. She needs like some boiled beets and she needs like cucumber and things that are very blood building and cooling. And like, right. So like to, to try to feed people things that aren't good for them to confirm or to receive appreciation or fanfare of any kind is some kind of narrative element as opposed to you know just having doing your best to help them meet their needs for nourishment and for Mm. healing and for what their body needs at any given time yeah it's a thing that comes to mind here is sometimes people do gestures of care because there's Uh like a a hidden contract that they want something in return Uh or they want to feel giving to get, um, giving to feel significant, giving to um, uphold this sense of identity that you're a caring person, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the analogy or the, the concept or whatever, the, the mental cue that, that helps me distinguish between when I'm doing that thing or when I'm doing like the real thing is um, the idea of a gift. Um, a, a true gift is, uh, is something that is given wholeheartedly without any expectation in return. Mm-hmm. And it's totally outside of market norms. You know, you're not like, okay, this gift was $50. So I expect a $50 gift in return. Like that would corrupt the concept of mm-hmm. a gift. The gift is complete in the moment of the giving. Um, and any, it, it comes from, from within with no expectation. And so I think care uh, requires that, that, that component. Otherwise it starts to become corrupt or pathological Mm. Mm, that's such an important element like you've seen this right there's there's certain people who are very caring at a on a surface level Uh but at a deeper level it's almost a form of uh sophisticated manipulation yes of course of course and yeah I guess what I've seen to add on to that, I would say that it's most often the most common form of manipulation here is that they're actually just looking for affirmation, mm-hmm. fishing, they're fishing. They want to, and it's, I don't shame them. I have done this myself. I'm, I want to be approved of, I want to have some of my other needs met. So if I can, meet your needs, then maybe in the future you'll meet mine. Um, I guess what I'm wondering there is I love this concept that a gift is just purely given and it's complete in the moment. Mm-hmm. I like that. I think that's important. But there is also this like human economy of community, which it doesn't, I don't think has to be negative. I don't think that has to be negative. I don't think that the, You know, I think that we all have the hardware is evolved in us to track hierarchy of any kind, Mm -hmm. right? Like 
you and I, even in our most embodied communal friendship, our minds can't help but to keep some kind of ledger, some kind of memory going of what the nature and of our relationship is. I think this is inherent in us. Yeah, I think um, I think there's a way to reconcile this because you're right. That feeling of reciprocity is not necessarily bad, and the desire to also receive care for giving care is not necessarily bad. Like if you can think of an extreme example of this, if you're being really giving to someone and they're just taking advantage of you at a certain point, that's just not sustainable, right? Like if you're not able to, if you're not keeping track or that hardware, you don't have that hardware of the ledger that's like, you know, subtly keeping track of fairness, um, it's just not sustainable and you'll burn out. Uh But I think the way to reconcile that with the idea of the pure gift is, First of all, to not, uh, to, to err on the side of like, it's better to, to give more and occasionally be taken advantage of Mm. than to be super stingy and then never Mm. be giving. Mm. So if you're going to make false, positive, false, negative errors, just be on the side of like, you know what, like every now and then I get a bad deal, but, um, in general, I'm just like constantly giving because Mm. by the way, the giver in a way is more blessed than the recipient, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is, uh, I think it's to respect that, um, that internal ledger, but just to not, not overly prioritize it. So the way this maybe comes up for me, I'm trying to think of an example. Okay. There, there are times where I no longer feel like being wholeheartedly giving with someone, Mm -hmm. right? Like I might not, uh, you know, you know, there's times where you just, uh, you really just feel like massaging your partner Mm -hmm. and it's not because you want to, uh, I don't know if you hear that. Those are the planes. Toronto air show here. That's it. Yeah. You're not massaging them because you want them to massage you back or like give you some sort of sexual favor Uh or whatever. Like it's, it's not that at all. You just like genuinely feel like loving and affection or whatever, but let's say, um, you keep doing that and then they just like never massage you back. Right. Ever. Uh Um, and so it becomes completely asymmetrical at some point. You're just not going to feel like wholeheartedly investing that energy and effort into that person because your, your intuitions about giving shift. And I don't think that's necessarily you're keeping track of some sort of market norm ledger. It's, it's more like you have a limited amount of attention and time and energy, and you have to honor that within yourself as well. And it's not necessarily 50, 50, you know, maybe like you're cool with like 80, 20 arrangements where you're giving 80% and someone's giving 20%. But as soon as it becomes 81, you feel like you're compromising yourself and you're out, you're out of integrity with yourself. Uh I think that's a subtle distinction between, um, simply walking around and making sure that everything's tit for tat and having some sort of uh, basically market norm ledger in your mind with, with all the the care that you're giving and receiving from people. Mm -hmm. I think there's a couple things I would add here. I guess I would say that my intuition is that this ledger hardware in our heads is innate. And it is a function of survival. It is us projecting into the future our needs being met or unmet. Okay. And our ability to fucking stack wood for the winter and our ability to like put the potatoes in the fucking bunkers, like that's the same human ability to look into the future that has us measure our relationships as, you know, per their ability to meet our needs into the future. Mm hmm. So I think even the gift economy is still some kind of balance. There's a balance here. And I like what you said that it's actually not that the person doesn't give enough. It's that at some point I come out of 
integrity with myself that I'm giving too much here. This is depleting for me. Yeah. And it's because unsustainable. I, it's, it's depleting and unsustainable. I, Cause I could also see the situation where there was a person who's such a good recipient that they never actually have to give back the thing mm-hmm. that their reception mm-hmm. is so profound that I would, they um and ah, they um and ah the food and are such a great conversationalist. I'll fucking cook dinner every time. Right. Every time. Like that is so fulfilling for me. That is so fulfilling for me. I think that we constantly talk about the gift without talking about being a good receiver. Yeah. Right. And it's like, like John Elway just isn't John Elway without someone catching the fucking ball. Like you, somebody's got to catch it. That is what closes the circle of the gift, right? Right. It's like complete. That's what completes it. It's like half of a giving and half receiving. Yeah, and there's a skill in, in receiving. Absolutely. There's I, a simple relatable example of this is, uh, I don't know if you've encountered this much, but I find people generally have difficulty with letting compliments land. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a skill in receiving a compliment. Absolutely. I've been uh, working with nonviolent communication a lot lately. And, yeah. and um, what's incredibly illuminating is that uh, Rosenberg talks about the compliments being judgments, positive, but still judgments. Mm. Hey, good job. Hey, you're a nice person. Hey, you're so smart. These are all judgments of a, what a person is. And he lays out a frame for what he calls giraffe gratitude, which is where you express to a person their specific actions that they did, how it made you feel, and what needs of yours were met through that. Mm. Right? That's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. That's awesome. I love airplanes. Um, which is a very different thing. So, hey, Daniel, you're so smart. Is different than Daniel. The tweet about my goals being shitty proxies for tribal belonging made me feel very supported. And affirmed because I have a need for belonging and that helps me see it. And that doesn't judge you at all. It doesn't make you anything. I'm not trying to make you anything. And it also helps you understand the ways in which you enrich my life and help me meet my own needs. Mm -hmm. This is how I affirm in you that it's a real relationship of care, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to a positive judgment that is some kind of manipulation. Um, because basically, if you tell your children that they're a good boy when they do something you like, and they're a bad boy when they do something you don't like, then you're just judging them over and over and over and over and over. Then they're right. going to spend the rest of their lives without a heart this is what Enriquez and I talked about yesterday, that they don't have this organismic valuation that they have to just like take all of their decisions and put them onto external things of their ego and what other people think of them. And they don't just have the balance of having their heart and their own integrity. Yeah. And even just, um, thinking about what it feels like to receive the first compliment. You're so smart versus the second comment. Um, in the first case, it's like ego boosting in a way that makes me feel, uh, more self-oriented and disconnected, right? Mm -hmm. It's just kind of like, Oh yeah, me. Right. And in the second one, it's, you're, you're basically spelling out, um, the impact of something I did on you 
And so it feels very connecting. Like I feel more connected to you because yes. I start to see like, oh, you know, my choices matter. And then yes. they ripple out and they yes. influence people in this way. Absolutely. The negative version of this does the same thing. Mm -hmm. I say, Daniel, you know, you said this to me. I felt insecure because I have a need for X and that wasn't met. Mm -hmm. We're still connected. It still draws on the fact that we are connected, that we're interconnected. And so giraffe gratitude, as Rosenberg calls it, and expressing like full expression are the same thing. It's the same thing. It's just a positive and a negative. Right? Like you've enriched my life and helped me make, meet my needs or my needs are being unmet and I'm having a negative human emotion based on my needs being unmet. Mm -hmm. And then furthermore, you can make a request. I think I would prefer in the future that you would ask my permission before you give me such um, critical advice. You know, I've heard that one before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yep. Me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> you know, I, just to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit, I think um, this style of communication is very well suited for certain personality types, perhaps like you and myself. Um, but I've run into issues in, in past intimate relationships where, um, I, uh, like I, I have some facility with maybe adjusting my language to communicate impact, you know, to be nonviolent in communication or to use principles from uh, authentic relating or circling mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, but a lot of people, they, that whole process seems like way too cerebral and too, uh, verbal and they communicate care and impact through other things like like most of the women i've dated for instance are a lot more expressive than me like with their with their face with their bodies with their emotions and uh less expressive in terms of their words in the way that you just demonstrated like to mm -hmm. slow things down and to spell out the impact of things conceptually mm -hmm. and so because just in practice i've run into what feels like hard limits in certain relationships with incorporating that kind of um, communication style, the nonviolent communication style. It's made me wonder if it's just like a tool in the toolkit and there's actually like other modes that uh, are worth developing as well. Like for instance, sometimes um, you don't have to tell me that I've had a positive impact on you. You can just give me a hug and then I'll know, right? There's no words exchanged, but there's something much more meaningful conveyed. I absolutely agree. And I love this. This is... Um... I agree. I think the hug is more obvious. It's realer. It's so often more real, right? There are relationships where I know my words will land. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There are relationships I know where if I am slow and speak very deliberately, that they'll be received. Right. There's also relationships I know that like, you know, I've got a, you know, I'm talking to a dude <laughs> and I know I'm talking to a dude. So it's like, yeah. that was dope. Thank you is all that is needed. Yeah. Um, and I think knowing your audience is a huge thing. And, um, but I also, I think we are we're behooved, we are behooved to acknowledge these different ways to communicate so that, so that we can like open the channel for them. Right. So like, yeah, like, Hey, when I did that thing, and you looked at me really tender and you gave me a long hug. 
were you feeling like really grateful that like one of your needs was being met? And she's like, mm-hmm. You're like, okay, great. Like, I, I like that. Right now, now you've like translated the different dialects so that you can more concretely interpret what that gesture meant. And so that she feels safe, comfortable and seen to speak in that language. Right, right. Right. Because if you're just like, hey, I need you to tell me giraffe gratitude. Right. Tell me what I did, how it made you feel, and what your needs were met. It's like, okay, well, at some point, there will be a moment where she will likely use something like that, that it's real for her. And there's also other times where she's going to like look at you a certain way and like cringe and like kind of like roll her shoulders forward that it's like, yeah, no words are necessary. Right. So I think it's important to, you know, like, fuck man, how many different languages can we speak? You know, we can speak in a, we can speak meta Limburgian. We can, <laughs> you know, like. One we of can my favorite speak, dialects. Yeah. Well, mine too. Mine too. But it's like, I don't have any girlfriends who speak Limburgian. Right. Right. So, <laughs> so, you know, in introducing these different languages is really helpful because there's some of them are just they have different abilities to convey different things. And yeah, like they have, you're they have saying, different strengths. they have different strengths and the ability to convey a really heartfelt message in nonviolent communication versus a really long hug. It's like, you know, it kind of depends on the person and the context. So yeah, and it's a function of care, right? Because care to come back to our original point to, to best show care, you have to know your audience. You have to like, I, and this is a trap I fall into all the time, like, especially with my, my family where I want to communicate in the way that I want to communicate. Mm. And then I, I know them well enough to know that they're not going to receive it. But then there's a part of me that's like, no, they should meet me where I'm at. And in those moments, I'm not actually being caring. I'm kind of, uh, simulating it, you know? Mm. It's like I'm, I'm using principles to to govern my my language and and the way that I, I communicate, and it kind of mm. s- seems like at a surface level it's caring, but ultimately it's hmm. it's downstream of me wanting things to be a certain way for me, hmm. which is uh, which is very different. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I can I can imagine that. I also just like with when you bring up family, I just think that. The typical family dynamics are habituated. First of all, they're deeply, 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 deeply habituated. Yeah. And they're not always healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the dysfunction and illness that we see in our relationships is in our families. Sorry. It's like we're nicer to strangers than we are to our families. So. I agree that we have to know our audience, but I also don't like my own integrity says that like, once I've illuminated sickness and, and dysfunction, like I don't really want to go back there. Yeah. I don't want to go back there. I don't want to sink to that, but the art, the art is, can I express care in that old shitty language? What does care sound like in that old shitty fucked up language that we spoke growing up in the house? Right, right. Um, you know, I think that, you know, just the other day I was talking to Jordan Hall and I asked him about some, some things about parenting. I'm around children all the time here in my neighborhood. All my friends have children. They love me because I'm crazy Uncle Larry. And I asked him what he thought was like the most important piece. Like what are some of the concepts that he thinks are most important? And I talked about NVC a little bit and he basically said that NVC is a tool, a helpful one, but the energy that you have underneath all of the tools is the thing. Mm Mm-hmm. 
the energetic fingerprint will be left on everything that you touch and interact with. That when you convey a message to someone, they will receive all of the message. That is including the, no, I want them to meet me where I am. Mm -hmm. They will receive that. And so when the energies are fully aligned, I think that the language is so much less important. That's right. Right. When the thing is embodied, the tool is just the tool. Yeah. And you, um, you're more likely to pick the right tool for the job, right? Absolutely. It's like, if I, uh, actually, I'll just say this. I think, I think the ideal default energy or the ideal default intention is one of love. And I think a lot of people know or, or have a sense of what people mean by that when you say love, because yeah. you can tell when you have a more loving moment versus a less loving one. Yeah. And in those moments you're, you're agnostic to what, you know, communication device you're going to use because yes. that's secondary to the intent. Yes, of course. And all of the tools can be aped. All of the tools can be weaponized. Right. Right. You can like, Obviously, you can dig a hole in the backyard with a shovel, but I can also hit you in the head with it. Yeah, you can be loving with uh, acts of care and kindness, or you can be manipulative. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. So the energy and the embodiment really is at the at the um, base of this. And I just, the embodiment is the most important part. Yes. But I also just like, I got to play devil's advocate a little bit. And I got to say that picking the right tools and trying to learn how to use them properly is a worthwhile thing to do. I, I completely agree. The, again, I'm, I'm running that analogy with uh, music. And uh, I've had experiences where I hit you know, I'm playing piano and I'll, I'll hit like the upper limit of my musical vocabulary. I just don't know enough scales to have, you know, facility over that chord or something like that. But I know something. And if I'm humble and my intention is kind of like this open, earnest, creative thing, I'll play like a very simple passage with the vocabulary that I have, you know, with the scales that I know, the notes that I know, the tools that I have. And invariably, it, it sounds more uh, meaningfully musical and uh -huh. uh, it's easier to connect with yes. than if I were to fake something at a level that was beyond my, my skill set. So again, it's like the intention comes, comes first. Of course. Because who wants to receive a, f a phony compliment? Yeah. Those are the worst. Or who wants to have a lawyerly, cold discussion with that on the surface seems like everyone's being polite and cordial with one another, but underneath there's like something off. Uh-huh. Of course. No one wants that. Yes. I think. A oh, I got one more analogy. Um, dancers. Not everyone is a, most people aren't skilled dancers, but the most enjoyable people to witness are the people who are really free and they're letting go. Yes. And it doesn't matter if they know how to dance. Yeah. But it is a bit better if they do. Like it's, it's a little more impressive and it, you know, the highest levels of it are really skilled dancers and the combination of the sense of freedom and authenticity with the skill is yes. really, really beautiful. Yes. But that's not the thing that we want to experience and witness. We want to experience the earnestness, the freedom, the earnestness. Yes. I totally agree. Earnestness is such a high ranking virtue in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Earnestness, good faith. Yeah, and I think for this, we have to develop a sensitivity to knowing where our, the, our energetic source is for any given thing, and also a sensitivity to the feeling of reception from another person's care gift mm -hmm. 
dance, right? Like, so like without sensitivity, you might just look at someone and say, no, they suck at dancing. But if you're sensitive, you're like, no, they're an unskilled dancer who's doing it totally right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and in ourselves, that's the ability to, to, Hmm. it's the ability to be sensitive to where the things come from in us you know i thinking back to a recent conflict with a past partner where i felt justified in being quiet and taking space and then two days later realized you know and apologized that i think that me taking space was actually trying to punish you with silence hmm um, not always easy to know right then in the moment where my energies are coming from. It's really hard. It's really hard. But um, a practice of psychological mindfulness is um, very helpful. It's very helpful. Yesterday, Greg Enriquez delineated for me, he says he's not a, he's not a meditative mindfulness practitioner he's a psychological mindfulness practitioner he doesn't sit in meditation ever he says that he tries to bring an awareness a metacognitive awareness to his life all the time mm. i felt very validated by that because i have such a hard time sitting in meditation and i also am very reflective and thoughtful of myself and my behavior and my words and these things. And so it's very validating to hear that I can continue to practice that and not be, you know, written off as someone who's just like not doing the work. Right. 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 That you're not meditating. Oh yeah. It's because you don't, you're not trying. No, no, no. I'm trying to be as mindful as I can all day. Yeah, it's a, this is a very interesting conversation. I think it's one so worth having. What does it look like for us to care for each other? Where does our care come from? For me, I, you know, my own desire for belonging has manifest a lot of caring for other people. That the energy behind it may have been tainted with please don't go. Mm -hmm. Are you sure you don't want another meal? You know, like, come on, I'll cook you that thing. You can just stay. You know, we see this in our parents sometimes when they're like, are you sure you don't want me to make? Yes, I can relate to that. They're like, please stay. I'm like, well, no, sorry. So I think it's very worthwhile to think about where our energy comes from. And it's interesting that we started this talk about tribal belonging and it shifted into community and then i think we've been jamming on what is actually community what does it actually look like well it because seems like we're getting to the fundamental unit right because community is is basically a scaled up version of relationships that happen first one-on-one -on -one and then maybe one to many and, and and onwards but if you can't get it right between you and the person in front of you, then who's to say you're going to get it right at scale? Yes. Yes. I totally agree. And I think that if we zoom way out, we can look at the delineation between shared narrative and real relationships of care as where mm -hmm. the whole thing fucking is coming off the rails already. Well, I, I have a lot of care for people who I don't, I don't have shared narratives with. Psychological care, spiritual care, or communal filling their needs care? It, I guess it depends, right? There, there might be less access to do the, I guess, like the real, like in-person exchanges that mm -hmm. we were kind of referring to earlier. You know, if you, if you simply don't believe the same things. But generally speaking, I don't see any obstacle between me and my ability to care for someone and, and them if our narratives are different or put to put that more clearly 
I don't need to have the same narrative as someone to, to care for them. I, I can agree. I can adopt their narrative for the moment and look at the world through their perspective and be like, based on the way they see the world, this is what they think. I disagree with it, but if I were them, I might feel the same way and I can care for them within their narrative. Oh, I totally agree. And living in a neighborhood without fences, it's like, you know, I don't really care what my neighbor's political affiliations are, but like he's got a wood pile that needs stacked. And like, I can, I can like participate in helping him with his needs, right? regardless of his, whatever political flag is flying out front, you know? Yeah. And, but I, I think on a zoomed out societal level, I think that the same is true. What I said about a growing sensitivity to our own, to where our energy is coming from when we want to care for someone, if we have a keen sense of where that comes from, because I think politically we try to enact things through the political mechanism into the world that I don't think... a lot of people have the sensitivity of like what they're actually trying to do, where that's coming from in them. This looks like virtue signaling. This looks like um, outrage culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And it doesn't really help because the energy is, the energy is of a desire to belong to a political in group Mm -hmm. as opposed to a real desire to have people's needs met. Because I think the people who, really desire to help impoverished people meet their needs, go to the homeless shelter and volunteer. They go to the soup kitchen, they go and they find things to donate. They like, there's like, there's like boots on the ground steps to be taken everywhere every day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's not to say that the desire to have a larger political movement that has an effort and a, efficacy to meet a large group of people's needs in a more powerful way is a bad desire, but the desire, the sensitivity for where that energy comes from in us is so important. Agreed. I'm sensitive of your time. Yeah. Maybe that's a good place to end. It's been great as always. Yeah. I, uh, I'm going to take a couple things away from this. I'll just repeat them out loud. Uh, first it's, it's not the thing, it's the place that it's coming from. The energy. Yeah. It's the energy behind it. It's not the communication skill you're using. Uh-huh. It's not the instrument you're playing. It's the, yeah. the intent, the energy, the heart attitude, etc. And then the second thing is if that intention matters, if that place where it's coming from matters as much as it does, then it's worth practicing getting that right. And, uh, and I think there are ways to do that. I think maybe psychological mindfulness to, to use that term or, um, taking a moment before you talk to someone to, to check in, to see where is it all coming from Uh or even, uh, in certain relationships, making it an explicit goal to have, positive intentions underneath everything that you're doing and maybe giving a chance to giving each other a chance to correct that. Like what happened with you and your past partner. If, if you have the type of relationship where you can quickly admit, you know, with a little lag time that actually, you know what, I didn't need space. I was just trying to punish you. And even though that'll hurt them to hear that, they will ultimately respect that you got clear on your intentions. Uh Those relationships I think will succeed. I appreciate that reflection. I think those are those are future Twitter nuggets that I know will distill out of you. Yeah, there we go. All right, Eric, thank you so much for this conversation. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. Let's do it again soon, buddy. Yeah. See you later. Take care. Okay. I hope that was helpful for you guys. Um, I hope you liked the Toronto air show that was happening over Daniel's house as we recorded. And... <laughs> And hopefully that conversation was thought-provoking at the very least. Um, If you'd like to support this show, please become a patron on Patreon. You can support it for as little as $5 a month. And 
spread it around. If you have any questions, feel free to email me. I love hearing from my listeners and I really appreciate that. So you guys remember that uh, you're going to die. Yep. Remember that you're going to die. Enjoy your life. Okay. You won't be here forever. Love you. Peace. Ojalá que las uvas no te toquen el cuerpo cuando caigan.